0: Today we're in Luke chapter 19, let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Father, we love you and Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And today as we look at this event that's commonly called your triumphal entry that happened on Palm Sunday, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open today for all that you have for us and that we could leave this place, every single one of us, knowing with confidence that you are the king of our lives, the king of our hearts. And so we give you this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Let's begin reading here in Luke 19 and verse 29. It says, And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go in to the village opposite you, Whereas as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. In other words, it's never been ridden on. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Pause there and let me have your attention. In ancient times, the coronation of a monarch was quite an event. It was quite a happening. It usually involved a great deal of splendor, a great deal of pageantry. For example, the coronation of Napoleon was a nine-hour event. Imagine that. But a typical coronation would look something like this. The king would be dressed in expensive robes. He'd have on his jewels. He would be driven through the capital city in an ornate carriage that was drawn by stately horses. Accompanying him would be those of royalty, sometimes foreign dignities and his or dignitaries and his soldiers would also be a part of that. There would be musicians that would be playing music and singers that would sing, and the crowds would break into these spontaneous chorus uh, in praise of their sovereign. And every part of the ceremony was designed to highlight the majesty, the glory, the power, and the dignity of that king. Well, in the passage before us today, it portrays the most significant coronation that really the world has yet to see. The day that Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday, and we'll talk about why in just a few minutes. But it was a coronation that was marked by great contrast to the ones that I just mentioned. You see, there was no pomp. There was no elaborate sort of pageantry. It was celebrative, but it was also simple. It was orchestrated, but not ornate. And as we look at this great historic event today, I want us to consider five things if you're taking notes. Number one, we'll spend the most time on this, the preparation for this day by King Jesus. Number two, we'll look at the celebration that happened for the king. Then we're going to look at the rejection of the king by the religious leaders. And then we're going to talk about the lamentation of the king, how Jesus wept. And then finally, we're going to talk about the sanctification that takes place by the king, what happens after Jesus gets in the city. But we'll start with the preparation by the king. And what I want you to note is that Jesus picked the way and the day. We see this in verses 28 through 34. You see, this is the only time The only time in the public ministry of Jesus where we ever see him orchestrating a public display of where people were being drawn to him. This is the only time, every other instance, when Jesus, when the people would seek to, you know, prop Jesus up and they'd want to make him the king. And they'd want to, you know, they'd be praising him that he would tell his disciples, all right, it's time to go. And he would always say, you know, it's not my time. It's not the time for me to be glorified, but a week before this day, Jesus said, it's time. And the Bible tells us that he set his face like flint, like a stone, and headed for Jerusalem. Because it was the time, and it was here that he orchestrates this whole thing. He picks the time, the beginning of the Passover week. He picks the place that he's going to ride in through the eastern gate from the Mount of Olives. And he picked the way that he would ride in on the colt of a donkey. Now, why a donkey? Well, there's three things that I want you to note about this. One of the reasons was it was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Prophecy. Number two, it also created a paradox. And number three, it gives to us a picture. First of all, It was the fulfillment of a prophecy. You see, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the the prophet Zechariah, writing 550 years before this event, wrote these words, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey.'" 550 years before this event, the prophet Zechariah wrote concerning the way that the Messiah would ride into the city of Jerusalem, that he would come lowly, riding on a donkey. He would come, in other words, in humility. He wasn't coming in pomp and pageantry. Pageantry, you know, when the when a Roman general was having a victory parade, he would ride into the city on the back of a great stallion, and his army would be riding behind him, and behind them would be the captured soldiers. It was a a, a moment of pride. It was a moment of look how great we are as we've conquered the enemy. Jesus comes in humility riding on the back of a donkey. So Jesus set up the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah chapter nine. So it was the fulfillment of a prophecy, but it also creates a paradox because Jesus instructed his disciples to go into a city and to get this donkey. And in verse 31, he says, if anyone asks you why you're taking the donkey, tell them the Lord has need of him. That's a paradox. Paradox. Because that sentence really creates for us what we would call an oxymoron. Moron. An oxymoron is two ideas that don't go together. And the idea of Lord, sovereign, God, and need, God having a need, that doesn't go together. That's what an oxymoron is: two ideas, two phrases that don't go together. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pretty ugly. It's an oxymoron. You're either pretty or you're ugly, all right? It can't be both. Or how about this one, jumbo shrimp, all right? That's an oxymoron. Or this one, government organization. (laughs) It's an oxymoron, right? Well, the idea of Lord and need, they don't go together. The Lord of heaven needs nothing and no one. Jesus could have ridden down the Mount of Olives on the back of an angel if he wanted to. So this presents for us a very interesting paradox that the Lord would need something. God doesn't need us for anything. God is sufficient in and of himself. But this is what's really interesting. Throughout the life of Jesus, we see that the Lord puts himself in a place where he needs something. Where he, And the reason he does that is he's giving man an opportunity to partner with them. So we read in Mark chapter 4 that Jesus needed to borrow a boat, the boat of Peter, so that he could push off from the shore and preach to the multitude that was pressing upon him so greatly. We read in the Gospels of Jesus needing to borrow five loaves and two fish so that he could feed a multitude of people. We're going to see that Jesus needed to borrow the tomb of a rich man so that he could rise from the dead on the third day. And here we see that he was in need of a donkey to ride into the city of Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. Our Lord, catch this, our Lord has chosen to place himself in a position where he has need. Why? In order to partner with us, not because he needs us, but because he wants to bless us. He wants to give us the blessing of being able to be used by him. Let me give you an example. A few months ago, I was hanging a coat rack in our bedroom. And I got my little four-year-old grandson and I said, hey, Josiah, you want to help Poppy hang this? Now, did I need him to help me? No. But boy, did he get a kick out of it. You know, we got the drill and I lined it up and I put his hand on it and let him push in the drill, you know, to drill that in. And we hung it up and we posted it on Instagram and he saw his face, you know, and he was so excited. Now, did I need him to do that? No, but he was so blessed by it. And when it fell down because I didn't anchor it right, I blamed Josiah. (laughs) No, I didn't, but... But in the same way, God doesn't need us, but he invites us to be a part of what he's doing so that it's a blessing to us. So this picture, the way that he chose is is fulfillment of prophecy. It creates this paradox and gives us insight into why God, how God partners with us. But it's also a picture Because you see, what are donkeys known for? Stubborn. You've heard that phrase. You're as stubborn as a mule. Why do they say that? Because donkeys are stubborn, self-willed, strong-willed creatures. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's a good picture of us. And this was a donkey that had never been sat on. It hadn't been broken in, in other words. No one had ever ridden on it, but this is what I want you to catch. This is so beautiful. In this picture, this donkey is under the complete control of King Jesus as he sits upon it. There's no bucking. There's no problem. He's doing exactly what he has been called to do. And this is a perfect picture of our lives. You see, when, when our stubborn, strong-willed lives are surrendered to Jesus, great things can happen. And he is glorified in and through us. So Jesus picked the way that this was going to happen, but he also picked the day. And the very day that this happened is also the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. In fact, one of the most fascinating prophecies in all of the Bible that's found in Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel, writing over 500 years before this event, he prophesied concerning the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, And the second coming—it's all rolled into one in this prophecy in Daniel chapter nine. And I don't have the time to go into all of it, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of it today. Daniel gave us what would be what we could call the countdown to the Messiah. The history of Israel—this is what Daniel wrote—would be marked by seventy-seven year periods or a period of 490 years we call this daniel's 70 weeks the countdown would start when a king now listen close this is fascinating The countdown would start when a king by the name of Artaxerxes would give the decree that he would allow the children of Israel, the the people of Israel that were living in Persia at the time, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city. Daniel prophesied that from the time of that decree, when the king would give that decree, 483 years would pass. And after those 483 years, the Messiah would show up. That was the prophecy. They were looking for a Messiah. And, and, and Daniel said, this is when he's going to happen. You watch. You, you keep your ears open for when, when, Dan, when King Artaxerxes makes this decree... That we can go back and rebuild our temple and then you can start the timer. Well, on March 14th, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes said, okay, you guys can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your city. Now, they used a lunar calendar in that day. That's a 360 day calendar. So here's what you can do. This is so amazing. It's so fascinating. Is from that point, March 14th, 445 B.C., you start counting 483 years, but it gets better than that. It's not just the years. You can count it to the very day. From March 14th, 445 B.C., You count 483 years, which is 173,880 days from using a lunar calendar. That brings you to April 6th, A.D. 32. And guys, that's the exact day that we're reading here in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem. He fulfilled the prophecy to the very day... And it's one of the most significant prophecies in all of the Bible, but it doesn't stop there because this is what Daniel said. At the end of that week, where the Messiah would come in on Passover, on Palm Sunday, riding into the city of Jerusalem, he said at the end of that week, this is how he phrased it, the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. Guys, what happened? What happened at the end of this week? On Sunday, Passover, the beginning of Passover week, Jesus is riding in. The people are, are standing along the road, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the end of the week, they're yelling, crucify him. Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off. He was crucified to pay the price for our sins. You see, this is what the people in the Old Testament, this is what the people leading up to the time of Christ didn't see that there would be two comings of Messiah. In the first coming, he was going to come as the lamb who would lay down his life to pay the price for the sins of the world. Remember when Jesus came walking into the Jordan River, what did John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's his first coming. But Jesus is coming back for his second coming. And he comes back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering one that he's going to set up his kingdom here on planet earth. So here's what we need to understand. There have been 70, there there were 70 weeks of Daniel that were prophesied. 69 of them have been fulfilled. They were fulfilled when the Messiah shows up after 173,880 days. It was fulfilled when Messiah was cut off. But there remains one seven-year period that Daniel spoke of, and this is what he said about that time, that in that final seven-year period, that there would be one who was be called Antichrist that would come on the scene, that Antichrist would solve all the chaos in the worlds. And you know, our world right now is looking for a leader. They're looking for somebody who will take charge. It's like you listen to the EU and some of these different places, and they're like our, our 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 world right now is is devoid of strong leadership. But this guy is going to come on the scene, and he's going to solve the problem in the Middle East. He's going to find a way for the Jews and the Arabs to coexist. He's going to find a way for the the people of Israel to be able to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. But then it tells us in the middle of that seven year period that he's going to turn on Israel and all hell is going to break loose. And guys, the stage is being set right now. The world is looking for a leader. The world is, is becoming more and more, um, just accepting of the idea of a, of a unity of government. We've seen this through the pandemic. We've seen this right now with the war going on in Ukraine. Everything is moving in this direction. Everything is falling into place. And here's my question for you. If Jesus was able to fulfill the prophecy concerning his first coming to the day, why would we doubt that Jesus is going to fulfill his prophecy to first come for his church and what we call the rapture, and that he would fulfill his coming of uh, his second coming and coming to this world? And the question isn't, is that going to happen? The question is, when and are we ready? So first of all, we see here the preparation by the king. He picks the way, he picks the day. Now the others of these points we're going to go through a little bit faster. Number two, we see the celebration of the king. Look at verse 35 again. It says, Then they brought him to Jesus. This is the Colts, the donkey. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're welcoming a king. Now, it was customary in that culture, when you were doing that, to lay your outer garments on the road so that the king could walk over them. Because it was a symbolic way of saying, we are placing ourselves at your feet, We are accepting your leadership. We're placing ourselves at your feet so that you can even walk over us if that is necessary. Now in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 11, their account of this event, they add that the people were crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means save now. And, and it tells us in those passages that they were waving palm branches. That's where we get the idea. This, this event is called Palm Sunday. Save now! What were they, what were they wanting to be saved from? They wanted to be saved from the Roman oppression. This is what they were hoping for, that Messiah was going to come on the scene and he was going to drive out the Romans. And so they were all excited, like, okay, this is finally happening. Jesus is coming. He's finally going to take charge. Save now, they were saying. Let's get your kingdom going. Let's drive out the, the Romans. But Jesus had something greater in mind as it relates to their salvation. You see, Jesus came to save us from our sin. Jesus came to save us, to deliver us from the fear of death. Jesus came to set mankind from the dominion of darkness and Satan. And so the people were cheering and praising and rejoicing. Save now. But the next thing I want you to notice is what the religious leaders were doing. This is number three. We see the rejection of the king. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, here's the thing. Why were the religious leaders so up in arms about what the crowd was doing? Well, you see, they knew. Don't miss this. They knew that what the, the, the crowd, they were quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that the people of Israel knew spoke of the coming of Messiah. So in essence, they, were, they knew that the people right then were saying, Jesus, we believe that you are the long-awaited Messiah. Now, I want you to notice, and this will be on the screen, how Psalm 118 starts. In verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's how this starts. This psalm that talks about in this section of the psalm, the coming of Messiah and the cornerstone was the chief stone of a building. It was the most important stone in any building project. And the Messiah is the cornerstone to the building of God's kingdom. This is the idea that everything rests upon him, but he would be rejected, the psalmist wrote. By the builders. In this case, it's the religious leaders of Israel. But then, but then the psalmist says this in verse 23. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in his eyes. What? It's marvelous that the Messiah, the cornerstone, would be rejected? Yes. Here's why. Because God sent his only begotten son, his beloved son Jesus, to come to this world. So that we could be saved from our sins. That's why we're told in Psalm or in Isaiah 53 that it it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Think about that. It pleased him. Why? Because this was the plan. This is what Jesus signed up for. That he would come and allow himself to be bruised and beaten and crucified so that mankind, people like you and I, who had rebelled against God, who were separated from God because of our sin, could be joined and brought into right relationship with God. So this whole thing, it's marvelous what's happening because it's part of God's plan to save humanity. But then it says in verse 24, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, oftentimes we we quote that. We sing that. And we think about the day, this day, like today. Hey, this is the day that the Lord has made. And that's not true. I mean, that's not false. That is true. He did make this day, and it does belong to him. But the psalmist was speaking of a specific day. This day, Palm Sunday. That would happen on April 6th, A.D. 32. This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that, that he has set up. Let us rejoice because salvation has come. And then in verse 25, it says, the people cried out, save now, Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And this is why the religious leaders were upset because they knew that they were quoting from this messianic psalm. But I want you to notice the response of Jesus. This is so good. Look at verse 40. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, these people that are crying out right now, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus said, look, if the people were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Wouldn't that have been something? I mean, this would have been the ultimate rock concert, right? (laughs) This would have been the the first and the real Rolling Stones, all right? (laughs) The rocks are crying out. But I want you to think about this because Paul the Apostle said that right now, creation is groaning because it's longing for the day of redemption. Creation is groaning, it's longing for the day when it can break forth in praise. The rocks are ready to cry out. Isaiah said, the trees are ready to clap their hands and the mountains will break forth into song. And it's my personal opinion that this is not just symbolic, metaphoric language. I think this is really going to (laughs) happen. Creation is going to break forth. In that day when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, it's going to be like, finally. So here's what I want you to think about. Creation wants to sing out but can't right now. And we, the people of God, we can sing out, but oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we're like, you know, I just don't feel like worshiping today. Think about that guys we don't realize the privilege that i think that we have that the lord says hey i've opened up the door for you to come into my presence and i'm telling you to come boldly come with a sense of excitement come with a sense of knowing that you are accepted come boldly before the throne of god and yet so often myself included we don't take advantage of that privilege and that opportunity. And can I just say, may that never, may we, may we as a church body, right now today say, you know, we never ever want to just give, as cool as it would be to hear, but we never ever want to just even give the, the rocks a chance because we're going to cry out. But here's the thing we need to understand. The worship that happens in this room when we gather together Sundays and Wednesdays and other gatherings has to be, it has to be the overflow of what's already going on in our hearts. We talked about this on Wednesday night, that one of the things that marked the early church is their praise. That they were marked by an attitude of gratitude because they were focusing Not on the hard things that were happening, but the greatness of their king. Well, that leads us to the the fourth thing we want to note today, the lamentation of the king. Look at verse 41. It says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because, catch this phrase, you did not know the time of your visitation. So check this out. Picture this. Crowds are lining the streets. They're celebrating. They're yelling Hosanna. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he's weeping. And the word wept, I want you to catch here, the word wept in the Greek means to wail out loud. It's speaking of a violent cry, of a passionate cry. So this is the question. Why was Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem? I want to give you a couple of reasons. One, he was sorrowing over insincere hearts. Because Jesus knew. He knew that some of these very people who were welcoming him at this moment, thinking that Messiah is coming, here we go, but then, at the end of the week, they see him arrested. They see him stripped and beaten. And they're like, oh, he's not who we thought he was. He's not going to do what we thought he was going to do. And so then the same crowd, some of this same crowd, that was yelling, Hosanna! Save now! Begins to yell, crucify him. And so Jesus is, is yelling, He's weeping over the insincerity of their hearts. That these guys would not bow to a king that was not of their liking. They wanted a king on their own terms. And you know what, guys? We can be guilty of doing the same thing. Listen to me. We can be guilty of, of wanting a king on our own terms. Who does what we want him to do. We can passionately sing, Lord, I surrender all. We can sing that until he doesn't do what we think he should do, and then we get upset with him, right? We find ourselves, you know, we say Jesus is our king until he asks us to do something that we don't want to do. Or he asks us to give up something that is precious to us because he knows it's going to hurt us spiritually, and and, and so then we find ourselves not being so enthusiastic about King Jesus. We can be as guilty as these guys. You got to check our hearts. So Jesus knew that some of those who shouted Hosanna would crucify him. That, that Jesus knew he was beginning the week in his triumphal entry, but he was going to end it with his death march out of the city. So he's weeping over the insincerity of their hearts. Secondly, he was sorrowing over missed opportunities. And you know what? This is actually the second time that Jesus wept over the city. The first we have an account of in Luke chapter 13. It'll be on the screen. Jesus at that moment cried in this way, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings but you wouldn't let me. The city of Jerusalem holds a special place you see in the heart of God. And Isaiah in Psalm chapter 87 verse 3 it says glorious things are spoken of thee O city of God speaking of Jerusalem. In Psalm 48, verse 2 and 3, it says, It is magnificent in elevation. The whole earth rejoices to see it. Mount Zion, the holy mountain, is the city of the great king. God himself is in Jerusalem's towers, and he reveals himself as her defender. This city has a special place in God's heart. But Jesus wept over this city because they were blind to the work that God wanted to do for them and in them and through them. He said, like a mother hen wants to gather her chicks, I wanted to gather you. In other words, I want intimacy with you. I desire intimacy. I want, I want closeness, but then he says, but you weren't willing. And again, church, there's, we, we can apply this to our lives because that's the thing God wants from all of us is intimacy. The Bible says in Galatians chapter four, verse six, that the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. And this is what he's doing. On a daily basis, he cries out, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. So the Holy Spirit inside of you, every day you wake up and he's like, daddy. What's that? That's a cry of Intimacy. But how many times are we not willing? God's saying, hey, I want intimacy with you. I want closeness with you. But we're too busy. We're not willing. The third reason he was sorrowing over was their horrific future. You see, Jesus could see. He knew the future of this city. He saw so clearly the utter desolation of this city. Every event in detail. He knew that in just a short time, and it would happen in AD 70, that the Roman general Titus would come into the city and they would overthrow it and ransack it. And what would happen was exactly what Jesus said. The temple would be torn down and one stone would not be left upon another. And so Jesus was weeping. And I think Jesus weeps today over men's blindness. An unwillingness to allow him to work in their lives to be their savior because jesus sees the destruction and damnation that is going to come upon people that don't turn to him that don't put their faith in him that their life they're, li- they're going to spend eternity the bible says in hell separated from a God who loves them. People say, why would a loving God send people to hell? The answer is he doesn't. But people end up there of their own free will because they reject the, the gift of salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus. They're not willing. And it breaks his heart. And so if you're here today in this room or you're watching online perhaps today, and you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, know this, this is the day of your visitation. This was the day of Jerusalem's visitation, and they weren't willing. This is the day of your visitation. Jesus said, today is the day of salvation. Will you cry out, save now, I need a savior. Or are you going to cry out, not now. Don't bug me. Not ready. Oh, I hope today you cry out, save now. And that leads us to the final thing that we want to touch on today very briefly, and that's the sanctification by the king. Look at verse 45. It says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, I want you to catch this as Nalu begins to play. He doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't go to Antonio Fortress where all the soldiers were. He goes to the temple. And he goes into the temple and he starts turning over tables. Driving out the people that were in the courtyard. This is the reason why. The religious leaders had set up the the temple courtyard to be like a swap meet of sorts. And they were ripping people off. One of the biggest scams they were pulling was this one. You see, on Passover week, people would bring lambs to be sacrificed because they were celebrating the, the time when God delivered them from Egypt and the, the angel of death came. And it was only the houses that, that had the blood of the lamb that on their doorposts that the firstborn would be saved. So every year they celebrated that. And there would be a ton of lambs that would be sacrificed their blood would be shed but here's this was the scam you'd bring your little lamb that you had raised from home and it said though the lamb had to be without spot or blemish no defects and so this is what would happen the priest would examine and they'd go oh oh we we see a defect here sorry this one's not suitable can't use it but but here's what we'll do we'll 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 do like a little trade in all right like a car trade-in. We'll, we'll take this you know, lamb off your hands so you don't have to go back home with it. And, and we'll sell you one of ours. And they would do that. And then they'd take the lamb that they just took in the trade-in and they'd sell it to somebody else. And it was a scam that was going on and Jesus knew it. And so he comes in and he overturns the table. He's driving them out. But here's what I want you to catch. This wasn't the first time he did this. Jesus also did this exact same thing in the beginning of his ministry. Two different times, Jesus went in and cleansed the temple, overturned the table, drove out the money changers. And I think the application to us who are saved, who are followers of Jesus, is this. The Bible says that our hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? The Lord has come at times into my heart, my temple, and he's had to overturn tables. He's had to say, Rob, this needs to go. You need to get rid of this. This is a problem. And so I take care of those things, and just when I think, all right, I'm good, he comes back and he says, you know what? There's something else here. We got to deal with this now. Why does he do that? Because he loves us. He does that because he's committed to completing. The Bible says that he's faithful to complete the work that he has begun in you to make you more like Jesus. That's the goal. And so as we close our time today, we need to consider our hearts. If we're going to say Jesus You're the King. Jesus, I want to give you entrance today into my heart and my life. You're the Lord. Someone said once he's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And we have to ask ourselves, are there areas of our hearts that Jesus, that we need to give Jesus access to? Is there areas of our heart today that that the Lord is maybe saying to you in your life, you need to get rid of this. If I'm going to do the work that I want to do in your life, this needs to go. So we need to be real with the Lord. And I want us to do that right now as we just turn our attention to prayer. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you, Lord, for what you did in coming to this earth to die on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for setting up the way that you came in humility, setting up the day that you would come to fulfill prophecy. But Lord, none of that means anything unless we embrace you personally and God I pray for anybody here right now that maybe has never put their faith in Jesus and they know right now today is their day of visitation you're knocking on the door of their hearts today God I pray that that they would respond to your invitation that they would open up their hearts Lord, I pray for anybody here today that maybe has rebelled against you, walked away from you, been doing their own thing, and they, they've come here today for, for some reason, and, and, and you, it's, it's their day to come back, to respond, to give their hearts back to you. God, I pray that you would move right now